I'm going to tell you a story. The ball of fire was hurtling toward my face. I couldn't move. There was really no time anyway. It was almost instant from the time I saw the fire until the time it hit me. In a split second, the fire had surrounded my head, burned the skin off my nose, my ears, my eyebrows were gone, my hair was singed, uh, whatever little beard I might have had that would have just been a couple of days stubble maybe was also burned. And I was wearing a welding helmet. Now, that's the old style, 50 years ago, wedding, uh, welding, not wedding helmet, a welding helmet, that's hard to say, tongue twister, uh, that only covered the front of the face with a shield and a, and a hat. And so the fire course came all the way around and through and uh, it was like having nothing in a sense because it wasn't really designed to face that kind of fire. <clears throat> this was fire from a huge furnace in a steel mill in Gary, Indiana. I was 21 at the time and it was a very scary event. Nothing could have been more awesome than seeing that fire coming at me. It was rather overwhelming. But I'm here to tell you that fire was nothing. Many years later, I would experience driving down a back road with forest fires on both sides. I would see the fire consuming virtually a whole mountain. Some cases we would find ash on our cars in the morning from the various forest fires burning around us in the Southern California area. Some of you who have lived in California have no doubt experienced something like that. <clears throat> but this fire too was nothing. Who do we worship? Who do we worship? Is he really God? What kind of power does he have? What are his attributes? Do we really know God? And do we acknowledge him as God? Let's read just one brief line about real fire in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 29, Hebrews 12, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. The Greek for consuming fire simply means absolutely that. It means utterly consuming. It means there's nothing left. In other words, had I been a victim of consuming fire on that day in the steel mills, I would have simply disappeared instantly. I want to talk to you a little bit today about the glory of God. I've been thinking about it for quite a while now, just going back and reading some of the descriptions in the scriptures. And of course, I can only scratch the surface of that, of that, if you will, today. Well, I hope not to scratch the surface, but rather only to deal with uh, the core elements of that that uh, we all are familiar with to a degree, and to repeat those and remind us, but also maybe to stretch our minds a little bit as 
uh, Aaron just did in the, uh, in, in the sermonette. One of the, one of the parts of the glory of God, in fact, is that he carries out his word faithfully as he did in these cases. Even though it's hard for us to comprehend the real effect of consuming fire, most of us have never really experienced that where there's absolutely nothing left. I guess the closest we ever came to it, I have this in my notes, it just occurs to me and I'm going to mention it briefly if I can keep it brief, but uh, in our uh, years in Washington, D.C., back in the early 70s, Judy was very busy and very tired with three, three children and me rushing around. Uh, and one afternoon she took a nap, <clears throat> and, but before she took a nap, she had put a pot of eggs on the stove to boil. I think a, several eggs, 10 or 12. She had a big pot of, of uh, eggs on the stove, and she put them on to boil. She was so tired, she thought, it's going to take several minutes, whatever, I'm just going to lie down for a minute. She lay down for a minute. She went so sound asleep. When she woke up, Lisa, who was about six at the time, or seven, uh, came in, no, Lisa would have been nine or ten, I guess, came into the house and saw smoke, ran next door, got the neighbor, came back. Well, Mom was waking up already anyway and going into the kitchen. <clears throat> there had been a fire over the stove in the kitchen or on the stove, and there was no real damage except the scorching of the wall, etc. But when Judy looked for the pot and the eggs, believe it or not, there was nothing there except a little silver dollar size, maybe quarter inch thick pile of aluminum from the pot. The pot had completely dissolved and burned. The handles were gone. The eggs, of course, and all the water were gone. It had been that hot a fire and that intense, and she had slept right through it. And yet, she and we suffered no real damage except some minor repairs to the kitchen. So I guess you could say we came kind of close to a consuming fire, but it didn't consume anything except the eggs and the pot and the water. We read about God's glory. We talk about God's glory. We sing about God's glory. And we call him the God of glory. But what does that mean? And just how glorious is he? How do we imagine God? Let's say when we approach him and kneel down to pray and we, we hallow God's name. How do we think of him? How do we see him? How do we imagine him? How do we feel him? How do we comprehend him? I've been here in the church for a very long time, it seems. Like 58 and a half years or so, 58 years. And I know that from time to time, I can get sort of blasé. I can get sort of into routine. I can begin to just sort of do things by rote, even prayer and Bible study, and not really let it sink in and not really let it affect the way I think and the way I feel and the way I connect with God. We can do the same thing with family. We can do the same thing with friends and brethren. It isn't good to do it with God. We need to remember who God is and comprehend the incredible glory that he is sharing with you and me, sharing his glory with us who are nothing. Let's try today in the time that we have to get a little better grasp, perhaps, of what we do know about God's glory 
and think about whether there's th- there are things we might not know about God's glory, what is commonly called in the scripture the glory of the Lord, or in, in the Old Testament it's almost entirely uh, the glory of the eternal, the self-existing one, uh, Jesus Christ, Yahweh, of course. What do we think? What do we see? What do we feel when we approach God in that way? First, let's get the vocabulary clear in our brains. It's pretty simple and not, not a lot to worry about or even write down unless you want to. Uh, in the Hebrew, particularly in the uh, Pentateuch, the word is K-A-B-O-D, pronounced kabod, according to Strong's, and it's Hebrew 3519, 3519. That's only important because it's kind of hilarious. Uh, The word means weight, weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. As the definition says, weight in a good way, as copiousness or splendor. Well, sure, that's what I always think of when I think of weight, splendor and copiousness. No, weight in the context of the generic meaning of the term as we might think of, we use it differently than meaning how much do you weigh or what is your weight. We say things like, Mr. Garrett carries a lot of weight in his congregation, right? When I say that, it means something different than I say, Mr. Garrett's gaining weight. If I say, Mr. Garrett carries a lot of weight in his congregation, you know what I mean. You know that I mean he's an elder, he has some influence, he, he... speaks, he gives announcements, he counsels, he, he's looked up to, he's respected. That's the sense in which this word is used, this Hebrew word, to describe God's glory. It is the word for glory in almost all of the Old Testament. Certainly there are variations, but this is the, the core term. Interestingly, the other is a word, H-O-D, pronounced hod, which means grandeur, beauty, excellency, majesty. More maybe what we think of glory than weight, although splendor and copiousness obviously add something to our understanding. And when I said earlier, I thought it was whatever I said, interesting, this word is H1935. That's right, 3519 and 1935. Now, there's no special meaning to that as far as I know, except that it made me correct my notes when I first saw that I'd written 1935 instead of 3519. Then I went back and was looking, and I, wait a minute, it's both. It's 3519 and it's 1935, and that, that got my attention. I haven't had a chance to research to see if there's any special purpose for that. I doubt that there is. It just happens to be the way they were numbered in Strong's Concordance. The other word that we'll use a little later in the sermon is from the Greek, of course, and that's number 1391, doxa, D-O-X-A, pronounced doxa. That word for glory is defined as glory, but of course, since nobody knows what glory is, it's added dignity, honor, praise, and worship. So you see, if you start to put all of those together, the word glory is kind of a catch-all for all of these wonderful things. Splendor, beauty, excellency, majesty, grandeur, honor, praise, worship. And that's probably the way we generally think of glory when we use the term, but I've never spent a lot of time thinking about and defining it other than it just means glory. 
so as I look at it, I think it's important that we remind ourselves from time to time just what it is. Furthermore, the word, in glory, the word glory in English, the way it's translated, can be used in lots of ways. It's not always very glorious. For example, it's used to describe God on the one hand, yet it's also used to describe kings, nations, even the strength of young men is called their glory. And in Esther 5, since we're in the book of Esther today, Esther 5, verse 11, even Haman's riches are called, he says he's going to show them the glory of his riches, or he does show them the glory of his riches. So the word itself doesn't help us a great deal, does it? It can be a verb, as in glory in the Lord. It can be a... a And sometimes it's exactly the same word in the Hebrew or Greek, and it can mean glorious. It can mean, as an adjective, something is glorious. So it doesn't give us the whole story. We have to see something more about it and let God himself describe it, in a sense, in order to fully appreciate the glory of God. We won't get into all of that today. We won't have that kind of time but hopefully you will enjoy following through on that a bit. We, we will look at a few key elements, as far as I can tell in my thinking and my reading. We're mostly going to talk about, therefore, the noun, glory, the glory of the Lord, the glory of the eternal, the glory of God. We've already read about consuming fire, and I hope that stays in your brain a bit. I've never been a friend of fire since... 1964, whenever that was. Yes, I think I had turned 21 in 63, so it was early 64. Let's go to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16. I remember here in Exodus 16, we're well before uh, Mount Sinai, and so we get a little bit of a glimpse into how God describes himself. Chapter 16, verse 7. I'll skim this rather quickly. Let's start verse 6, I'm sorry. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Eternal has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Eternal. This is one of the first times the word is used. For he hears your complaints against the Eternal, but what are we that you complain against us? All right, so he says, in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. Well, what are they complaining about? They're complaining about not having enough food, not having enough bread, and not having any flesh to eat. And he says, well, you're going you're to get your chance. Uh, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. Verse, let's skip to verse 9. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregations of the children of Israel, come near before the eternal, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Eternal appeared in the cloud. All right, so we're told the glory of the Eternal appeared in the cloud. If we didn't know anything else out of the Scripture, what would that mean to us? What would it mean to us that the glory of God appeared in the cloud? What, what is that glory, and how does, it, how does it present itself? How does it stack up except it's a cloud? So you have a situation where now glory is shown to the children of Israel in the form of a cloud. There's a cloud that obviously has some special characteristics or they 
probably wouldn't recognize it. But when he said, you'll see the glory of the Lord, that glory was the representation in the cloud. But then the works that came afterward in terms of sending bread and flesh, creating manna that was going to last them for 40 years, that is, was going to keep coming for 40 years, begins to talk about a form of glory that's not represented directly in the cloud. Let's go to chapter 19, verse 17. Chapter 19, verse 17. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. So now we're at Mount Sinai. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. I like the old King James. It says it was all on a smoke. I like that expression. The mountain was all on a smoke. All right. So Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the eternal descended upon it in fire. Now they had seen the glory of the Lord in the cloud. Now they see the glory of the Lord in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. So here's a different representation of God's glory. Verse 19, and when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. So you begin to see the cloud the fire, and now there's this mysterious voice coming out of the heavens, apparently, or from the top of the mountain that uh, obviously causes them a little concern. Moving on from signage, chapter uh, 24, well, we're still there, I guess, but let's go to uh, chapter 24, verse 16. Don't have to guess where we are. Verse 16, now the glory of the eternal rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the eternal was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So once again, they're seeing a consuming fire. Now that's the expression here. Uh, It evidently was not consuming the mountain per se, but it was so powerful and so uh, wondrous uh, that it is called a consuming fire. That's a rather amazing statement. Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. So you you think about that again. Sometimes we get so familiar with these stories, you read right over it. The mountain is quaking. The mountain is on fire. The mountain is covered with a cloud that's like the smoke of a furnace. But Moses goes up there. I think I'll go visit with God. He told me to come up, so I'm going. Can we put ourselves in that situation Can you imagine being told, come up into the mountain and come alone? Later, he was allowed to take others with him. But going up into that smoke and into that mountain, which is here collectively called the glory of the eternal, must have been some awesome event for Moses. Chapter 40, Exodus chapter 40. I like to go back and read these. Of course, I keep going back over and over anyway, but in Exodus chapter uh, 40 is one of the places like these others where you you, you have to stop and think about it, meditate on it a bit, and be reminded of the God we worship. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. 
Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. And you remember that when he set the tabernacle up and they set everything up and got ready. God came to visit in the holy place and God, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the eternal filled the tabernacle. Now, again, you assume here that it's one and the same. That is, the cloud covered it, it filled it, or maybe there was brightness inside. We see that sometimes, and the cloud is protecting people from the brightness and the glory of the Lord because they can't really physically take it in with their five senses. And we know that then he used the cloud whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go on in their journey. So the cloud represented God's presence. And when God stayed there, they stayed there. When God moved, he told them to move. And that was signified by the moving of the cloud. So what is called God's glory could be seen as fire. It could also appear as a cloud. Sound familiar? You think of Israel coming out of Egypt with the pillar of cloud on one side and fire on the other. God was always present. The cloud perhaps sometimes used to hide the fire. Some, some scholars uh, speculate, and it's probably true, that the pillar of fire was, in fact, the scripture says it in one place pretty much this way, that the fire was on one side, the cloud on the other, so that the cloud caused darkness to the Egyptians and light for the, for the Israelites. And God used those things in various ways throughout that trip, but also in other interactions with his people. Now, a place I like to go and read from time to time and be reminded of God's glory and God's power is Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel chapter 1. We're all familiar with this. I'm going to read it to us just to remind us, but I know we're familiar with it. And there's so much here, it actually goes comes and goes through several chapters. So I've only picked out a few verses, once again, to illustrate the picture God gives us of his glory. Ezekiel 1, verse 4. Ezekiel 1, verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. Fire engulfing itself. Have you seen that happen? Most of us have seen that. You see a fire and then the wind kind of mixes in or the fire gets so hot that it's creating a, a vacuum inside and it's, it's moving. It's almost like water. And that fire is just, just uh, how shall I put it? It's just swirling around, engulfing itself, as it basically says here. It came a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. So now we have a tremendous fire engulfing itself, but also has color. In this case, amber is used here. It has amber radiating out from the middle of it. Again, can we put ourselves in that position? I sometimes try to do that when I get down to pray, and especially if I'm feeling just kind of blah, if I've had kind of a blah day, or I'm just not, you know, I'm not really attuned, in a sense, to spiritual things. I've been kind of distracted or whatever. I get down to pray, and sometimes, you know, you, you think about the sample prayer, and you think, hallowed be your name, and, and, and okay, what is that? So then you start thinking about who God really is. 
and I call him all kinds of things, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all those things, all those things that he describes himself. But sometimes it helps to kind of imagine that you're Ezekiel facing this engulfing fire. And that when you kneel down there to pray, God could just go, and you'd be gone. It's just over. He doesn't do that. And it's nice to know that he won't if you're there praying to him to worship him and to seek his will. Dropping down to verse 26. Verse 26, and above the firmament over their heads. Now he's talking about the cherubim that he had seen. Over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also, from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. So that's the upper half. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. So it's a combination of the light and amber and the brightness all around, and it basically is the entire image of this individual above the throne. Now, it goes on to say, verse 28, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. Those of us who have experienced that know the joy of seeing on a dark and cloudy day when the rain is maybe just light or maybe it's pouring. And you look up and you see, I'm usually in the car when that happens, having spent so many hundreds of thousands of miles there. And you look up and you see that rainbow. Now, I'm not completely color perceptive. I only see four or five colors. I don't see all those colors in the rainbow. I see some of them. I see light and dark. I see yellow and blue in a sense. You know, Judy has to tell me which ones are which. I certainly don't see the green. But I see that rainbow and it's just fascinating. Sometimes it goes all the way across. Sometimes it's two of them. And these colors are not what we would call sharp and brilliant in the way that I think of them. It's not like going out and looking at a, a, a bowl of pansies, which I did yesterday. Uh, it's not like those colors to me. But when you think of the awesome reality of that light reflecting or refracting and creating that rainbow and the glory of it, the beauty of it, probably in Ezekiel's case, it was a very awesome sight. But look what it says. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the eternal. Interesting phrase. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the eternal. So the rainbow and the amber and the light and all of these things together again, maybe even without the cloud here, represent the glory of God. So Ezekiel says. He recognized it, of course, as God's presence. Chapter 3, verse 23. Let me drop down there. Chapter 3, verse 23. You can go through these first eight or ten chapters of Ezekiel, and it's just remarkable and marvelous to feel the, the power of God's presence in the descriptions that are here, even though they're given clearly in physical terms, if I can call them that, that you and I can comprehend. God can't really talk to us in spiritual language of how spirit is. He can only give us physical descriptions of it. Not that he's limited. We're limited. He can't, we can't see what he's talking about. So he gives us physical examples, even as he does with other spiritual principles. 
Verse 23, so I arose and went out into the plain and behold, the glory of the eternal stood there. Again, he recognized it as the glory of the eternal because why? The glory of the eternal stood there like the glory which I saw by the river Kibar and I fell on my face. So again, Ezekiel recognizes that this is God's presence being uh, manifested to him and he realizes how great and mighty and powerful God is. That's probably a very good thing because Ezekiel had a really tough job to do. And, you know, you can't even imagine lying on your side for 360 days or something, things like that. Ezekiel had a huge job to do, and it was pretty important that he knew who God was and that God had the power to do whatever he chose to do. This image, of course, of the brightness of the eternal's glory is consistent with what we're told about the glorified Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. And that's to be expected since he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. Revelation 1, verse 14. Verse 13 says there's one like the Son of Man, and of course it is the Son of Man in that sense. It's Christ. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Okay, so his eyes are like a flame of fire. That would seem to be enough. And yet it goes on to say, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Again, we're getting a physical representation of something bigger than our five senses can comprehend. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, his facial image, his facial expression, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Like the sun shining in its strength. What is the sun shining in its strength? It's fire. It is a constantly boiling, gurgling fire that sends out huge waves of fire from time to time. Jesus Christ is the source of that sun and of that fire, and he himself is so represented in this particular scripture. All the way to chapter 21, if you will, at chapter 21, verse 22. Chapter 21, verse 22. Talking about, of course, the new Jerusalem here. Verse 22 says, but I saw no temple in it for the eternal God and the Lord God in this case, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. They are its temple. You worship them directly. You don't have to have a place to represent their presence or the cloud or the fire or whatever to be there. They are there in person and they are as they are and their subjects are now spirit beings. And so they can comprehend and see the glory of God. And so the glory of the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. So again, it's associated with light and brightness and power. The Lamb is its light. The Lamb is its light. So all of this is very, very consistent and reminds me that Paul says to Timothy back, I think it's 1 Timothy 6, he says that... He dwells in unapproachable light. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's unapproachable. We talk about going to the moon and Mars. We don't talk about going to the sun. That's not going to happen. 
Even if it were close, we couldn't go to the sun. He dwells in unapproachable light. Now, these are descriptions of an awesome father and our savior, the one who came and gave his life for you and me, is so awesome and beyond our physical ability to describe and comprehend that God gives us several different representations and ways to think about him that are completely awesome. We could hardly call them anything but glorious. They're the most powerful and remarkable, impressive images I can think of that would, if we actually faced them in person, (laughs) bring us to our knees, I'm sure. Not because we knelt down to pray specifically, but because we crumbled. Because our legs went out from under us is what would happen. Yet, when Moses asked Christ, show me your glory, these are not the elements Christ shared with him. Moses had been at Sinai. This happened a little later. He asked Christ to show him his glory. And what did he show him? Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Exodus 33. I can't distinguish between EZ and EX, but it's Exodus. (laughs) Exodus 33. Exodus 33, just to pick up the question in verse 18. 33, verse 18. There's more here, but we won't go through it at this point. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. We drop down to chapter 34, where that begins to happen. Chapter 34, verse 5. 34, 5. Now the Lord attended, sorry, that's not correct. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. That's not right either. Verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He came to proclaim his name by not his phonetic sound of the Lord or God or even the eternal or the ever-living one. He came to proclaim his name in who he is and what he does. And the eternal passed before him, verse 6, and proclaimed the eternal, the eternal God. That's important because he is the self-existent, ever-living one, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this is not just some passing arrangement between him and Moses. This is permanent. And what else is he besides the eternal, ever-living one? He is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. Already a mouthful that you and I would like to have anybody say about us if that were the case even on the physical level. Verse seven, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So there's the compassion and the mercy. By no means clearing the guilty. So he's also just, has perfect judgment visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, a matter of consistency and faithfulness and dependability, which has to be practiced both on the positive and the negative side. Just as we heard in the sermonette, he carried out the the sentence on Amalek much, much later. You find that many times in the scripture, of course. 
So we have this list of traits that is remarkable. And of course, even though they're not one-to-one comparable, they obviously are the same traits on which the fruits of the Spirit are based in Galatians 5. They are the traits that God is transmitting to us through His Spirit so that we can be like, like God. We're not going to be like God just in being spirit or just in being fire, if we were, or a cloud, or however he's going to constitute our spirit bodies. But we are like God in nature and by nature. This is the glory Christ showed Moses. This is the invisible glory of the eternal in his nature, in his character, his righteousness, his perfection. But it's seen only in results. It's seen only in action. They're somewhat intangible until the fruits are produced. Just as the Holy Spirit in us, in a sense, is intangible until the fruits are produced. So in our lives, in our physical work, we would call it fruits. But it's permanent and inherent in our Creator God. Gospel of John, if you will, chapter 1. John chapter 1. Verse 14, John chapter 1, verse 14, a very important and critical verse in several in this chapter. And the Word, that is Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Now, we don't see very many examples in the New Testament, do we, of that kind of physical representation. We see Christ being transfigured before Peter, James, and John. We see the tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost representing the Holy Spirit. But we don't see a lot of the physical representation or presence of the kind of power and the kind of, quote, glory that we read about in the Old Testament, do we? No, we see the works of Christ. We see the results of his power. We see the results of his attitude, of his love, of his kindness, of his compassion, of his patience, of his mercy. We see a different kind of glory. When John says we saw the glory, we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Those two words kind of sum up all of those things we've talked about. This microphone and I have an ongoing war and I'm winning. I've hit it more than it's hit me. These two words, in a sense, grace and truth, have to comprehend all of those things we've just talked about in the way God presented himself to Israel. It's the same God. It's the same glory. It's presented in a different way. It's presented more like Christ presented it to Moses when he asked him to show him his glory. But John says it's his glory. We saw his glory. We saw the way he lived. We saw the way he fought. We saw the way he treated people. We saw the way he worshiped God. We saw his zeal. We saw his faithfulness. And on and on and on you could go. We probably don't have enough words to describe what he's talking about when he says we beheld his glory. You and I behold his glory every day. In a sense, we beheld his glory first when we were called. We beheld his glory when we came to repentance. His glory is spiritual 
in every way and yet represented physically to help us stand in awe of him because we think in terms of fire and cloud and hail and rain and lightning, tornadoes, hurricanes. We think in terms of those things that have physical impact on our five senses. But his true glory has impact on our spirit and our mind, our spiritual senses, which are given to us when we're converted. Grace and truth encompass apparently all of those characteristics. All right, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a section here that deserves more time than I can give it here, but I'm only wanting wanting to read it in the context of this, this subject of glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. It's something we in the ministry have had to read and understand and apply many times over. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. He talks in verse 6 about the letter and the spirit. The the letter kills and the spirit makes alive. Going on to verse 7. But if the ministry of death, that is the whole system of law and penalty for breaking the law, the sacrificial system, etc., all of it together, if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, that is the law, was glorious, and it's the same word, doxa, D-O-X-A, it's almost always the same in, in the Greek unless it's a different form, and even then it it's pretty much comes back to this. This glorious is the same word as the word glory uh, in previous verse. If the ministry of death written engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Moses came down from the mountain, his face glowed, so he had to put a veil over it. Remember? Then verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Wow. Think about that for a moment. The thunder, the lightning, the cloud, the, the smoke. The fire, the quaking of the mountain, all of that, you and I would be a little bit overcome. We kind of really need to be overcome the same way in the spiritual sense by what God is doing spiritually and what he is doing in our own lives, mine and yours and all the rest of the Christians we might know or not know throughout the world. Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, and it did, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Wow. The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. We honor and respect and appreciate deeply the faith and the humility, the meekness, the power of Moses. But he says we have a similar responsibility and a similar calling to be able to take in the spiritual image of God and reflect it back out in those same fruits that represent his glory. God intended that we and Israel, for that matter, a physical carnal nation, should be awed by those physical things, his so-called visible presence. But he's revealed himself to the church in these otherwise intangible ways, things that the people around us can't see unless they see works and fruits that show that there's something going on inside. Otherwise, 
They're not visible. That's why sometimes when those who claim to be religious are so loud and boisterous and bombastic and and trying to convert you and convince you of something, it comes across a little bit unreal because that's not what true spiritual power today is. That spiritual power might make you respond in certain physical uh, animated ways. It might not. We're all different in personality and thought and style and education and all of that. Uh, and, and sometimes even to express God's glory, we are so limited that we have to almost artificially sometimes create that, that uh, opportunity. I remember I, I was a feast coordinator in Pasadena, California in 1981. Mr. Armstrong had just returned to Pasadena from Tucson, was living there, and uh, I, I was the coordinator. The rest of the ministry had basically gone from Pasadena except incoming visitors. And so Mr. Armstrong and I, in that sense, were the resident ministers. And I had had to check everything with him and make sure it was all right because he was going to be broadcasting around the world, et cetera. And so I was also backstage on the day that he was going to speak. And uh, he was backstage looking at his notes, listening to sermonette. Uh, paying attention, but at the same time, you could see him just kind of getting physically worked up. And eventually, as the special music was ending, he got up to the curtain, sort of where the curtain opened. We usually just pulled the curtain out at the corner, and you walked out on the stage and over to the lectern, which similar to this, except the stage is much bigger. And Mr. Armstrong was there wanting to get out, and I had the dubious honor of holding the curtain shut until... The orchestra pit came up because they had had it down during the special music for whatever purpose they were using. Oh, I know what it was. His desk was on that part of the stage, and that was a pretty large desk. And so for the special music, they moved the stage down. So even after the special music was over, the stage had to come up, which took some time. It can go 18 feet below stage level. And so I was, of course, responsible for not letting him walk out there and fall off that stage. So I had the curtain in my hand, and I turn around, and Mr. Armstrong is there. Pardon me for a minute. He's going. And he's just working his body into getting himself loosened up. I've just been watching a, a Ken Burns film on the Roosevelts, and that's what Teddy Roosevelt used to do. He'd shadow box when he got ready for a speech, probably where Mr. Armstrong got it. That's the right era for his time and training. Anyway, I was kind of surprised, kind of caught me off guard, and, but I, I still held the curtain. And he said, let me go. Let me go out. And I said, Mr. Armstrong, the stage isn't up. Well, then he got frustrated because why is the stage not up? Anyway, he was, you know, he was 88 years old at the time, but he wanted to go, and I had to hold him back. And I can't for the life of me remember why I started telling you this story. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I think it is the fact that spiritually... There can be a lot going on, and you don't have to be physically uh, agitated. But sometimes when the Spirit is moving you, you can be physically agitated and motivated, as he was on that particular occasion. See, I brought that around very nicely. (laughs) God wants us to be awed by his displays of his power and his glory. But once we know him, we know that there are other, what we might call invisible or intangible things that are happening that are just as remarkable, or as Paul says, they exceed in glory. Wow, they exceed in glory. How do we meditate on those things? How do we respond to God's unfailing mercy? How can we grasp the, the tremendous 
spiritual value of Christ's work, Christ's miracles, even if we're looking at the things he did with the unconverted. Do we think about them when we're praying sometimes? Do we take them for granted? Water turned to wine, the blind made to see, the lame made to walk, the dead raised to life. Christ walking on the water, feeding thousands with a handful of food. Those things are all part of God's glory. They're who he is. They're what he does. The Father calling us out of a world when we had no idea there was anything going on besides the world. Some of you are second or third or even fourth or fifth generation uh, members. And by the way, if you know that guy over there that has Salyer for a last name, he doesn't represent me. Unfortunately, he has passed me already and he's only, you know, a young man. I'm, I was trying to give him something to think about, but it didn't work. Calling, bringing us to the knowledge of the truth, giving us repentance, forgiving our sins, sending us the Holy Spirit so that we can begin to think and feel like he does and work and produce like he does. Ultimately, of course, spiritual birth into the family of God. How does that happen? We become his own children. We are glorified to be like him. That's rather awesome and amazing. I actually know some individual or two who stumbled because they couldn't quite figure out how can God change us from physical human beings to spirit beings. And they mocked it and scoffed at sort of the beam me up Scotty idea of Star Trek that we're going to kind of change from physical to spirit, you know, and, and then literally gave up the whole concept of being changed from physical to spirit, which meant they had to go back to the immortality of the soul and being saved in that way. A very sad reality for some who knew the truth. Well, we could go on and on both in Old Testament and New Testament history of the representations of, of God's glory and God's power. Here's how the Father responds to the work of Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, and that just does again mean the phonetic pronunciation, but the power, the glory, the office, the, the status of Christ, who he is, at the authority and by, by his authority, the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now again, if that were the only phrase we had to use the, the word glory, to the glory of God the Father, what does that include? Christ's sacrifice, Christ's work on the earth, Christ's miracles, Christ's willingness to give his life for us to save us from sin when he was without sin. It really includes the whole plan of salvation, if you will. 
We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, the whole thing that we're experiencing is all to the very glory of God, and ultimately Christ will deliver up the kingdom to the Father. And so what he's doing now in us is glorifying his Father, even as we glorify him and his Father. He's working in us and through us to bring many sons to glory. I think this phrase is is very important that we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is creator, he's sustainer, he's master, he's savior, he's soon coming king. He is everything we need or could ever want if we really understand it. And that is to the glory of God the Father who is supreme over all of it. It's a very Almost seems like a casual statement when you just read through it. But if you stop and think about it, that's a pretty awesome statement. That we confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because the whole plan of salvation comes from him through Christ. I I stumbled upon something I hadn't noticed before. And this is is just for a bit of interest. Habakkuk uh, chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. You know, we're familiar and and repeat, I do at least, the prophecies uh, a lot that say uh, uh, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jeremiah 31, 31, other places. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk says something slightly different, which I found fascinating. 2.14, Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's not just knowing that there's a God, not just knowing the commandments or how to live. It's knowing the glory of God, things that you and I are knowing now and are trying to learn more about. The knowledge of the glory of God will fill the world. And that's a beautiful time. When we bow before the God family, before our Father in heaven, whom Christ told us to pray to, but we know that Christ is there at his right hand, and we begin some form of hallowed be your name. We need to be able to, as David said in Psalm 29, I'm not going there, but in Psalm 29, David said, give unto him the glory and honor due him. (laughs) Wow. How do I do that? How do I get down on my knees and give Christ and the Father the glory and honor due them? Well, I do the best I can, and that's what they want. That's what they expect. They expect us to do it within the framework of our own physical, human limitations, physical and mental in that sense, emotional, whatever. The honor due him. God, the Father, through Christ, created all things, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. I like to use that expression because he uses it repeatedly throughout the Scripture. That's how he describes himself. He's still creating. Now he's creating many sons and daughters, a family to bring to glory. I can't comprehend being glorious. I'd be happy to be healthy and handsome. Again, no. Sorry. I'd I'd be happy just to be really kind of on top of the world humanly and physically. But to be glorious, to be born into the family of God, to have his glory... 
Now, I didn't come. We had a board meeting this week, which I didn't talk about. Uh, Mr. Meeker covered it on In Accord, if you haven't seen that yet. Um, Mr. Burnett would probably mention it if he were here, but I didn't go into that at all. But I will, I will tell you that during the discussion of media, Mr. Kylo was making the point, which is pretty familiar to most of us, that uh, we try to have a CTA, as he called it, a call to action in most sermons, most articles, especially in media, we try to have a call to action as give people something to do. I didn't come today with a specific call to action because I don't really quite know what that would be except to say, as David did, give him the glory and honor do him, and when we get down on our knees to pray, to acknowledge that we're praying to the God of all creation. We're praying to the God who built it all, who created the universe, who created things beyond our imagination and comprehension, things we don't even know yet. Even human beings are still discovering several hundred uh, new creatures a year in the earth, or plants, or flowers, or whatever. That's an amazing reality, things that they never knew were there in some dark corner of the earth. He's still creating. He's creating you and me as children to be born into his family. So let's give him the glory and honor due him. And one thing I would like to add to that is this. Focusing on the glory of God can help us, I think, certainly helps me to deeply appreciate and understand it a little bit better. Paul's question when he says in Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, that doesn't mean you can't get in trouble or people won't be against you. It doesn't say that they won't be against you. It says who can. It's sort of a rhetorical question that really doesn't mean who can be against us. It means it doesn't matter who's against us. It doesn't matter who the opponent is. No one can succeed in being against us if God chooses to take our part. The point is that it doesn't make any difference. Our God is glorious. He is the God of glory and power and righteousness and might and goodness and mercy and compassion and faithfulness and all the things you could name if you made a whole list, and it might be a good idea to do sometime. Our God is a consuming fire. 